Welcome, everybody, to our number four episode of the Law of Liberty podcast with my co-host, Stratty. How you doing, bud? Doing pretty great. How about you, David? I'm doing pretty well, man. I'm excited to uh, move on forward with our with our uh, laying down of libertarian legal theory in these early episodes that we're doing. And uh, I'm excited today to uh, talk about contracts and the libertarian contract theory. Hell yeah, me too. Let's get it. Let's get it going. So before we get in there, I guess uh, maybe I'll ask you, um, when you hear the word contract and, uh, you know, when you think about it, like, what's your kind of basic understanding right now and, you know, as a libertarian and where you're at, what's your understanding of like what a contract is and, uh, and uh, you know, what, uh, what kind of goes into it? So when I think contract, I just simply think an agreed upon terms of some kind of transaction between uh, two parties. Uh, that's the most simple way of putting it. Uh, add to adding to that though, uh, of course, it would have to be voluntary on both sides. It can't be one of these uh, government contracts that uh, you know you're pretty much forced to sign. Uh, so that's what I think when I think a contract, a voluntary agreement to terms between two parties. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 basically correct. Um, contracts, uh, as we'll get into. Um, especially from the libertarian view, are definitely transactions of property between people. And so um, you definitely uh, pointed to that um, in your description. But also um, uh, one of the things we'll get to later is uh, kind of about the, uh, you said, uh, between two parties. And what you're talking about there is basically a, a bilateral contract um, where uh, two parties, you know, exchange things between each other, uh, but there's a, uh, also different types of contracts where you could have many people kind of signing on to an agreement or, you know, making the kind of same agreement with each other uh, to act in, uh, in concert with each other, and that would be something like a corporation or, you know, a business, something along that line, and so that's an interesting uh, aspect of what contracts can lead to that we'll kind of, I think, talk about at the end of the episode. Um, but I like what you said, you know, it's kind of laying out a lot of the uh, important uh, different things that we're going to be talking about uh, with contracts in this episode. So to start, I want to talk a little bit about how uh, the traditional theories behind contracts are explained and uh, applied by the uh, traditional modern legal system. And by doing that, we'll be able to kind of point out some flaws with the way the current legal system handles contracts. Um, and that'll point us in the right direction um, towards the libertarian theory of contract um, laid out by Rothbard and others. And so the, the traditional contract theory uh, basically bases contracts in the view that they are legally enforceable promises. So when you have a promise that the legal system will enforce, then that is a contract, the promise um, to do something and, or not to do something and the duty to, you know, to follow through on that promise. That's what uh, contracts are viewed as. So basically what the traditional theory will say will say uh, is that there is an offer by one party, uh, an offer to make a deal, 
there's an acceptance by another party. Um, and then if there is something called consideration, a legal doctrine called consideration, will ex which I'll explain in just a minute, if you have these three elements, offer, acceptance, consideration, then you have a contract. And it's a, the contract is the legally enforceable promise that the people made in their offer and their acceptance. And uh, there's some, you know, deep, uh, more kind of practical legal doctrines, you know, talking about, you know, when has an offer been made, um, when has an acceptance been made, and that kind of talks about, you know, how the parties need to make assertions or, or say things to each other or do things around each other that clearly show to a reasonable person that they would uh, that they would be offering to make a binding promise with another person, and the same thing for the acceptance, you know. Uh, and there's some other kind of aspects to that, uh, but I kind of just want to mainly focus on the the big kind of picture. And I think that offering acceptance are kind of you know terms that people can uh, generally understand. Um, they're pretty clear, at least in the most general sense. So. We have offer, acceptance, and consideration create this legally enforceable promise. Now, there's some problems with this idea, and one of the problems is this. Uh, as I kind of said before, one of the things that the legal system will do in ascertaining whether or not someone has made an offer or acceptance is, you know, looking at the assertions made or, or the, uh, uh, the things that the party said or did uh, within a Re within the light of a reasonable person, you know, how would a reasonable person have thought about uh, what they heard or said the other person do? And so what a lot of the times the legal system will say is that one of the reasons or justifications for this promise-based theory is basically that when someone makes a promise to you, they are causing you to rely on that promise, right? If you promise to pay me $100 if I move somewhere and then... You know, I think about it and I say, yeah, it would be worth it for me to move from this place to this place if I could get the $100. And then I move, and then the person who offered that $100 reneges, then they are the person who moved was harmed in a sense, right? Because they didn't get that $100 that they were promised. Uh, so what the legal system says is the person who is relying on the promise has to be reasonable in their doing it right if they weren't reasonable in the prom in relying on the promise then there's no contract right so if i said to you stratton i will sell you the moon well you're not going to reasonably rely on that promise because i don't i can't give you the moon i can't bring it down i can't chop it up i can't sell it to you i can't send you to the moon right i'm not, so you know something like that it wouldn't be reasonable for you to rely on that promise but being reasonable in relying on a promise would require that promises are legally enforceable. So you're saying that promises need to be legally enforceable because of reliance. But reliance has to be reasonable. But reliance is only reasonable if we assume that promises are legally enforceable. So we're not justifying it. We're going in a circle. You see the circularity there, the, the problem there? Yes, I do. Right. So... That's one of the first problems is that the entire kind of reliance justification for this theory just relies on a circularity fallacy from, from the get-go. A second problem with it is this doctrine I mentioned before called consideration. Now, consideration is basically an idea that you can't legally enforce a promise unless 
there has been some transfer of value, either monetary or property or something of that sort, between the parties in order to bind them to the contract. So if you just have the offer and the acceptance, but you don't transfer anything between each other to in order to seal that, then there's no legally enforceable promise there. Now, this is an interesting kind of problem with the uh, traditional theory, because as we'll get to, the libertarian theory is based on title transfers to property. So what the traditional contract theory is doing is it's saying, our theory is based on promises, but in order for those promises to be enforceable, you have to transfer some value, some property, or something like that in order to do that. So it's basically giving its own theory away. It's basically injecting a kernel of the libertarian title transfer theory into its own theory, uh, and it's a complete contradiction. And it's saying that promises are not going to be enforced unless some title transfer occurs. Um, so it's kind of a it's kind of a weird uh, kind of requirement that's persisted in the legal system, and it's a little contradictory to the entire theory of the promise theory itself, because they're basically just promising the theory that they're basically just basing the promises and the obligations tied to the promises to property, but saying that the promises are the key thing. So it's just a bit of a it's just a bit of a contradiction there. At that point, it kind of sounds more like a deposit rather than just a promise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is something that Rothbard brings up. It's basically a deposit, not a promise, right? So you're basically just kind of giving somebody some property and saying, I'm only giving this to you if you, if you promise to do something. So basically, the contract is based in the property then, not in, not in the promise. Because the promise is just a condition, a term of the contract. It's, it's not anything else. So the final problem that I have, uh, that I have to share about the uh, traditional contract theory is basically the way it handles uh, damages. That is, you know, monetary compensation enforced by the court for breaches of promises and contracts. And ultimately, what the courts do with damages in, in breach of contract cases, very rarely will the courts enforce what's called specific performance. Now, specific performance is basically a doctrine where the court will, will force a party to do something. You have to do this thing or, or something like that. You know, you have to fulfill your promise. You have to fulfill the terms that you promised that you would do in the contract. Very rarely will the courts do that. Basically, what they'll usually just do is enforce damages. They'll just force the breaching party to pay the other party a certain amount of money to compensate them for the harm that was done to them from not having the promise be, uh, be fulfilled. And so basically, you can see that the court, what it's really doing is just enforcing uh, transfers of title to money. It's not forcing the parties to fulfill their promises. So again, we see that the promise isn't the basis even of the enforcement in the legal system. The title transfer is more of the base basis, 
whereas the specific performance is, is a much more rare uh, thing that happens in only very specific cases, like in the contracts for the sale of land, because the court will say that the land is unique. And so, you know, the monetary damages don't compensate or giving them a different piece of land of the same acreage doesn't comp compensate because they're all you know, different land. They have different unique properties. So in some cases they'll do it, but most of the time they're just following that title transfer of damages. Uh, and so I think that all of this, these problems with the theory, basing contracts on promises and other kind of stuff, uh, relying on reliance within your theory, it leads to very unlibertarian doctrines uh, and and different kind of uh, uh, ways that things that play out in the court system, such as a doctrine called substantial performance, which is a doctrine where if a person in a bilateral or unilateral contract, if someone says, hey, I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, and then if you walk halfway across the bridge or more than halfway and then the person says, no, I changed my mind. I'm not going to pay you if you walk across the bridge. Then what substantial performance will say is because of this reliance that you did, you started doing the job. You started walking across the bridge, but you didn't go all the way. Well, you still should have some remuneration for having done part of the uh, thing that the other person promised to pay you for. This is called substantial performance. And uh, Rothbard uh, heavily criticizes this doctrine because he's basically saying, hey, if you haven't transferred any actual property yet, then there's no contract. So if you just relied on that promise, that was your entrepreneurial risk uh, that you took and you failed uh, you, you failed to entre to uh, predict the, the future, you know? You didn't get any property, and because you didn't get any property, there was no legal claim. And so a promise that someone makes to you is just an entrepreneurial risk that you have to assess and then decide on how to take. So I've gone off for a little bit there, and so I'd like to get your thoughts on kind of the traditional contract theory, some of those problems I talked about with it, and uh, some other maybe uh, insights that you might have on how this kind of framework might lead to anti-libertarian uh, uh, legal outcomes. Yeah, so as for the anti-libertarian legal outcomes, I don't have the insight or foresight to really be able to see that right off the bat just from this conversation here alone. But I can say that uh, I definitely do agree with Rothbard's assessment of contracts here more so because that really gives meaning to what we call uh, good contracts or bad contracts, um, simply put that way. And I think that's a better understanding of what a, a contract actually is, which is, you know, like you said, if you take up someone's uh, promise, that's an entrepreneurial risk. I mean, every single contract's different. The terms to it are different. So how exactly are we supposed to rule upon uh, contracts universally when every contract is drawn up very different from one another? So as uh, for the anti-libertarian thing, I can see where I can see where that could happen. I'm just not sure how specific cases it could occur in or uh, specific ways it would violate it. Um, however, in the way I'm looking at it, Rothbard's explanation or take on what a contract should be as opposed to what the law has it 
makes a lot more sense and seems to be what an actual contract is. That's the way I see it. I want to I wanna kind of uh, build off of what you kind of said. You were talking about contracts, terms, and how every contract is drawn up differently. And I think that's, that's an interesting point um, because, like you said, that's always going to be true. Like always there's going to be every contract's different. It has different conditions, different terms. That's always going to be the way things are. And also a lot of the time, contractual terms might be ambiguous because people might just be dealing with each other by habit or, you know, their neighbors, you know, their land borders each other. So, you know, so these kind of things, contracts don't need to be written down on a piece of paper. They don't need to be explicit, you know. They can be, I think they can be implicit if there is a transfer of, of title to property, if, if, you, if you can prove it, you know. I think it can also be non-spoken or non-written, right? So it's like, I think that having written contracts and spoken contracts, those are important for us to know, what the con- terms and conditions of the contract are, and that's all evidentiary for determining what the terms are and what should be enforced. But in terms of the actual contract itself, uh, all that matters is the title transfer and the specific terms or conditions of that title transfer sometimes get you know very difficult and murky. Uh, and like you said, very case-specific kind of things where you have to look at the specific way the parties acted and stuff. And so that's why I think that basing it in property is so important because basing it in property and title transfers it, that's the universal right there that, you know, the universal basis of contract. And so then we can base, once we have that basis, we can, we can build off of it. But promise, it's not a very good universal basis for contract for the fallacies I laid out before, but also because it, all that the promise is, is the terms. So we don't have any actual physical grounding or title grounding to the promises. We're just saying things we're just making promises so that's much more loose and will lead to much more problems in letting the courts control what people's contract terms are allowing for the courts to you know enforce their views of contracts uh, without having it be based in actual provable property you know so i think that's a really good point that you bring up that the promise the promise theory it allows for the very varied terms of contracts to muddle contract law and allow the state to uh, to have its way with it. And to put it simply, every day we make a contract and they it's in the smallest of things. Uh, say like, hey, uh, David, uh, here, can I have a piece of gum? And it, well, what am I going to get for this piece of gum? And I say, okay, well, you can use the laundry uh, machine first tonight. That's a contract between us in some sort of sense. Whereas... Like, uh, the, another, uh, contract would be like, uh, Hey David, uh, can I have your last piece of gum and I'll pay you back? Now you may not actually trust me that I'll pay you back. So you're probably not willing to take on giving me your last piece of gum. So, and I think that, uh, is a lot, very understandable for most people because they are able to see like, Oh yeah, we all have a friend that, you know, never pays you back. But we also always have a friend who is good on their word and will let me use their things as much as I let them use or have mine. So, yeah, we do that. We do those kind of things every day. And 
if we, we and whenever we look at it on the the minor issues such as those, and we can see the problem with that. Imagine how bad the problems can get the more magnetized and major they become, especially on the state level. So I, I'm totally getting. I'm picking up what you're putting down, uh, talking about all these contracts and the problems with them, and the how what they should be and what they shouldn't be. I I totally get it. Yeah, and 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 one of the things you just brought up was kind of like uh, the idea of like loan contracts, right? You give him the gum, and then he'll pay you back later, probably with interest, you presume. And I think that that would be basically a proper contract as well, because it's not the promise, even though the person who's getting the loan isn't paying anything up front, that can still be valid under this property title uh, uh, contract theory, because you receive conditional title to the gum. The conditional title is based on you paying in the future. And so then if you don't pay in the future, then you default on the contract. You have now, in the eyes of the law, you've stolen the gum and you can be forced to either give the gum back or pay uh, restitution uh, interest um, for the lost use of it, right? So uh, yeah, it's uh, you're bringing up a lot of good stuff there for sure. So, yeah, we've been talking a lot about the, the, the title transfer theory, and I guess just right now it would be good to kind of just make it clear exactly what that means. We talked about it a little bit in our earlier episodes, but just to make it very clear and explicit, because of the libertarian theory of ethics and property rights and homesteading, then because we homestead resources, then we have control over them. We can do whatever we, with them what we, that we want. And part of doing whatever we want with them, as long as it doesn't violate other people's property rights, then part of that is giving the property to somebody else. And that's all that contract is. It's just giving title to property to somebody else. It's just part and parcel of the homesteading principle that we talked about um, in our argumentation ethics episode. And so that's the correct way to, uh, to, to view these contracts. So I want to talk a little bit about an interesting question of how this uh, might play into labor and like wage contracts and stuff like that. Because when you're working for a employer, you're not transferring any title to anything to them because you don't necessarily own your labor. It's just something you do, right? So it's like, I don't necessarily own my bodily movements as property they're just kind of things that i do and they're transient and i can move from one place to another and so this kind of cuts against labor theory of value that you know adam smith and karl marx would talk about back in the day where you like selling your labor and it's something you own and it even is kind of it kind of cuts against even ayn rand and her view of like value and contracts and other kind of things about how you create value with labor and stuff. So I was just kind of thinking, uh, what do you kind of think about that with the, like the labor theory of value and how basing contracts and property might kind of uh, cut against this labor view that's led to so many you know economic fallacies and political problems throughout the you know throughout the last few hundred years. So just on the issue of whether you own your labor or not that's very inter- that's a very interesting uh idea to me because i i, I get what you mean where labor is really just kind of something you do but also i would say you know because you own your body 
And because human action, uh, there's always a reasoning behind what you do. Therefore, I, I would say maybe you own your labor just because it's purposeful. Uh, however, you know, I won't take either or on that issue because I'm not too well versed on that. However, if the labor theory of value, if we're going to, uh, put that into the mix here with, uh, contracts, no, that's, it's a, it's a totally, it's a totally bad idea because I mean, so the labor theory of value is basically saying however much labor you put into this is how much it's worth. Um, well, if we're going to speak subjectively here, I mean, we are Austrian economists. What you may deem enough labor may be different from me, or uh, we may say that labor was worth nothing, or you may say that labor is worth nothing while someone else says that labor was worth everything. Uh, just for subjectivity's sake, that's a, a terrible idea going off of labor because that's opening up a whole can of worms, especially for one's uh, physical being. So with that in mind, I think the best way to go about it would uh, maybe I could see labor being used as a penalty uh, in the sense of if a contract is not honored, then you are entitled to someone else's labor temporarily. Um, but I don't know. That's a very interesting thing you put you put out there because I never even thought of it like that. You know, I, I've always seen it how you said with the promises and the property, uh, with the labor. That's that's a whole other issue I, I've never even considered. Yeah, I think I think the main thing that it might kind of lead to if we kind of, if we have a a better view of you know what labor is and how it how it should be viewed by a legal system, I think it would it would if we were to get rid of the kind of that kind of view that I was laying out that, you know, that labor is kind of something you own or something, you know, and that, that the, the promise space theory might allow that view to, you know, flower. I think that we would uh, be able to spare ourselves from some of the terrible union policies that have, you know, been so, been so bad for the, uh, been so bad for the economy um, so I think that that's definitely uh, definitely something that, you know, an aspect of contract law and our view of, you know, work and labor and contracts and deals and stuff. If we could uh, relieve ourselves of this kind of view that we that we sell our labor, then we can get rid of some of those bad legal outcomes that are based on that. So uh, from there, I want to talk a little bit about contractual enforcement. We talked about it a little bit before. Um, but I want to make clear wh exactly how Rothbard and the others kind of kind of lay it out um, in their writings. What they kind of say is that transferring title is the basis of contract, but transferring title is not the same as transferring possession. So if you transfer possession to something, well, that possession is physical. It occurs, right? If I hand you a Gatorade, and and then that's the transfer of possession, but that's not necessarily the transfer of title, right? And so, me handing you the Gatorade, I could say, hey, you know, I'll let you have this if you give me ten bucks. Well, then your getting of the possession is one thing, but your getting of the title, getting of the title is conditioned on the ten bucks. So if you don't give the ten bucks then you have possession of the thing, 
but you haven't received the title for it. And that's the basis for contractual enforcement. It's not that you have not done what you promised to do. It's that you have, that you're in possession of somebody else's property. Now, the reason why you're in possession of somebody else's property might be because you didn't meet the condition for the title, and therefore because you didn't meet the condition for the title, you're, you have possession without title, and therefore you're a thief. But the reason that you have to meet the condition is because you have pro- possession of the, of the property. If you don't have possession of the property, then you, you're, you haven't stolen anything. And therefore, you can't use the legal system to enforce anything for not uh, uh, meeting your promises. And so Rothbard calls it implicit theft, um, that you got possession without title because you didn't meet the conditions for the title. And so you have to give back what you took in restitution. So restitution is the main remedy um, under contracts. You have to give back the property that you're holding on to, um, even though you haven't met the conditions to become the owner. And so there's no breach of contract in that sense where just because you didn't do something you promised to do, therefore you can have enforcement. That's the promise-based theories. That's what the traditional theory says. Because you didn't do the thing you promised, uh, you have to have enforcement to, to, uh, pay to, to pay damages. What the title transfer series says is that because you didn't meet the conditions, you're holding on to somebody else's property without the title, you're a thief. And so therefore you can't force anybody to do anything other than giving back the property. And uh, an important implication of this is that this, this theory prohibits fraud because if you give somebody a hundred bucks and say, hey, I want a TV, they get the hundred bucks. They say, all right, I'll give you the TV. But then they send you scrap metal in the mail. Then they have defrauded you. They didn't meet the condition to get the hundred dollars and they lied to you about it. And so therefore you are a thief of that hundred bucks and you have to give it back if the, if you were to be sued. And so I think that sometimes people are all like, oh, in a libertarian society, People would just go hog wild and they would do whatever they want and nobody could trust anybody and all this stuff. And it's like, no, like the very idea of the property theory will get rid of of fraud. You can't defraud people in order to take their property. And it's not just because you're lying. It's not it's not saying that lying is illegal, you know, just saying something that's untruthful, but it's saying something that's untruthful in order to get possession of somebody else's property without the title. So I was just wondering uh, what you thought about that. How, you know, is this a, is this a good retort to these people who think that a libertarian society would just allow anybody to do what I want, lie without, lie without punishment, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, that we hear all the time. It definitely is. And it's kind of funny. I'm not sure if you, you may have mentioned it. I just may have missed it, but we kind of made reference to this in, I think, episode two. Uh, we, yeah, we, one we, of the early ones. Yeah, we, we did. We definitely talked about this. But uh, I also find that uh, talking about restitution, I think restitution is uh, perfect in the sense of punishing crime. Now, restitution in the sense of punishing a contract, I'm not so sure of. However, I, I do agree with the whole, you know, if you can't, meet your promise you can't meet the terms of the contract 
you don't have the title for it, then therefore you're in possession of what is a stolen item. I do agree with that. And I think how you said that's the perfect way of punishing this uh, these bad contracts and being consistent in a, in a libertarian society. Um, whereas if we used restitution as a way to uh, punish a bad contract, again, I could see it open, leading to a, a can of worms being opened. Uh, no, no telling what the arbitrator will agree to. No telling what uh, the victim will uh, deem as reasonable punishment. So I think we need to minimize those problems as much as we can and leave that just totally to private law and arbitration itself. And I think we can leave that out of uh, contracts. However, if there uh, is more to the reasoning for why restitution would be good in the sense of using it to punish bad contracts, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing it. Well, I guess uh, before I before I try to answer that, I guess I'm I'm a little confused exactly about what your concern is with the restitution. Could you maybe like explain that a little bit differently or expand on it? I'm not quite so sure what your uh, what your concern is there with the restitution and contracts. Before before you go, I'll just say what I mean by restitution is just, just you have to give back the property you've stolen. That's that's it. Okay, and I. I get that. I was thinking of more restitution in the sense of how Rothbard explains it, and I think it's uh, for New Liberty, where uh, restitution as a way to, you know, punish a crime for the or for the victim to receive some kind of compensation from the criminal in the crime. Uh, that's that's how I was more thinking. Of it. I I totally agree. Then in the sense of restitution, in the sense of just giving the property back, I I agree with that. Yeah, and so I, I, so that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought this up because I guess using restitution in both of those contexts can be tricky. Yeah, um, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. I hadn't made that connection before that we're kind of using those same terms there. So that's really yeah. good. Thank you for bringing this up. This, so, yeah, what, so what I meant by that in that contract setting is, yeah, you just give back what you have implicitly stolen. In in the criminal or or tort contract tort context, you don't necessarily directly just punish the guy um, without compensating the victim because then you haven't really made the person who was harmed whole, right? And that should be the point of 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 the legal system. It's first and foremost the person who was harmed. We should try to make them whole again. And the best way to do that is to make the person who harmed them responsible for making them whole. And so that's why, let's say you have a contract like we talked about before, and like what you've been calling it a bad contract, where um, we have an implicit theft, right? The person gets possession without the title. And then they have to give back under, the, under, use, under threat of legal force or use of legal force, they have to give back the property that they've stolen. But let's say that they give back that property, but the property is damaged. Then that as well is a separate, that's a separate tort. That's a separate harm to that stolen property. So you can sue under the contract and say, I want my property back because he didn't meet the condition for title. So that's how you get the property back. But if it's damaged, then you can also sue in tort and say, he damaged my property, 
and therefore I want restitution for that. And so there's the two different ways there, and they're both important, and usually I'm sure that in a libertarian legal system practically a lot of the times these two claims will be brought at the same time, but it's important to recognize that they are two separate claims. One of them is under the contract, I want the property back. The other one is under the tort, my property was damaged. And the payment back to the person, the restitution for each is is based in separate um, the separate legal uh, area, contract versus tort. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's good to clear that up for people. Definitely, because, I mean, I, I you know, as a listener, I could see myself being very confused hearing that and coming away from that with a little bit of a distaste for how libertarians may handle law. So good on me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's what we're here to do, man. We're trying to, yep. we're trying to save us from ourselves. Yeah, of course. Uh, so anything else you want to go on with before, uh, you know, talking about torts and, and such before we go on to the next thing? No, no, I, I think we're, I think we're good on the, uh, I think we're cool. good on the torts with that. Um, cool. uh, I guess another thing I want to say is like we were saying, the, I think there, especially with the fact that we're getting rid of the kind of the promise theory. And I think that there is, I think that there is a problem, a practical problem here in terms of, um, convincing people of the validity of this contract theory. And I think the reason for that is because most people grow up with the moral view that you should keep your promises. Most people grow up believing that you should say what you do and you shouldn't lie to people and that you should, when you promise someone that you'll do something, then you should do it. Um, and that's all good and fine. Rothbard himself says it may be morally, morally correct to uh, to keep your promises. Uh, but this goes back again to something we mentioned uh, in the argumentation ethics episode: is that morals and ethics are not the same thing. And ethics is based in property, and therefore it's not based in promises. Now, the promises may be a moral aspect. And it may be a practical aspect to have our society just work better with each other because if we all trust each other and we can have promises that we can rely on and trust, well, then that's practically a good thing. But that's not the basis of the uh, that's not the basis of the property legal system. That's just uh, a cultural kind of aspect and a personal kind of aspect that comes into the the practical uh, dealings between people. And so I think that an important uh, an important thing that Ross Bard talks about that might help to uh, waylay some of these uh, fears and, and trepidations that people might have about getting rid of promise as the basis of contract. What Rothbard says is that we could have performance bonds. Now, like kind of like what we talked about with the loans earlier, where it was, okay, I... We'll give you a hundred bucks now, and you got to pay me a hundred and ten bucks uh, in the future. Well, that's basically a performance bond, meaning when the when the bank gave the person the hundred bucks, then that was giving them title and saying, "We'll only give you this title now if you give us a hundred and ten in the future." So because of that title transfer, there it binds them to it. And they have to fulfill that, fulfill that promise or else they're a thief. 
you can do the same thing in another context. So uh, going back to the Brooklyn Bridge example that I gave before, if you, if someone says to you, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you cross the Brooklyn Bridge, but if you don't trust them or you're worried that, you know, they're not going to pay if you do it, well, then you could just say, hey, okay, I'll do it, but you have to give me, you know, some collateral, right? Or something like that. And so what this does is it basically binds them to that promise because you're transferring that possession to that property. Well, then if the contract doesn't go through, then they are in possession of your property and you can sue them to get it back, right? And so you could sue them to to hold on to that promise. So this is like a practical way that you could vicariously inject promissory obligations into the title transfer framework and you could practically do this as long as you, you know, transfer some title to property at the outset of the deal and because now that that title transfer has occurred all the contractual obligations that come from it are arise as well and that's going to hold them onto that promise that they made and so i guess my question for you is do you think that this strikes you as something as an adequate answer to some of the fears that people might have um to not having promises be uh be enforceable and do you think that this is uh something that practically uh could uh could help to convince people yeah i do because as you were explaining it the only two well the first phrase that went through my head was obviously when you look at it like this it's someone just looking at the promise and saying well talk is cheap and then how you said they're going to use some they're going to put something in there to kind of reinforce the promise that's also them saying we'll put your money where your mouth is if, if you're really if you really mean what you're saying so yeah i totally think that's the perfect um way to reassure people on how you know there's a better way of making of enforcing these promises because like i said talk is cheap you know when someone will put their money when they're where their mouth is that's when you know uh maybe they're not so full of crap with what they're saying and maybe there are is some substance to it maybe you can trust this person and if you can't well at least you know you know your your uh your butt's covered you're not gonna you're not gonna lose out on that. So yeah, I do think that's a pretty good way of going about it. That's a really great way to put it. I'm glad that you put it in, the, in those terms. Put your money where your mouth is. And I think that part of it it also ties in kind of with the uh, consideration thing. I think part of the logic for the doctrine of consideration was that you kind of had to transfer that value, make something, put your money where your mouth is, show that you're serious, right? That was kind of the idea behind it. But the doctrine never really was up to snuff because what, what the consideration doctrine kind of just said was that it really just made that kind of a formalism. It really wasn't actually like required to have have something on the line that's actually concomitant with like the importance of the deal to the parties or the value involved because what the what the law will say is the the current law the legal system will say is that all you have to transfer in consideration is a dollar a peppercorn there's something minuscule so it's just it's really just a formalism the idea of consideration but with these performance bonds it would basically be much more robust in actually holding people to those promises and actually having something on the line that's worth it. And I think that that would uh, help with entrepreneurship and assessing risks and maybe decreasing risks and deals 
other kind of things like this. This would just be another thing for entrepreneurs to use in order to best handle the the people and resources around them in order to make deals and, and get things done for the consumers. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a, I think it's something that that is a, a good answer and obviously not a lot of people know about it. That's why they still kind of think, like I said before, that libertarianism would just be craziness when it's like, no, there's actually a pretty robust, you know, system here. Well, definitely. I mean, I mean, as with libertarianism, same with this, there's many layers to it and there's many uh, ways to get innovative with it. Uh, you just need to, the thing is we're looking at this from with multiple points of view. We're looking at this, uh, the goods and bads of all uh, the propositions that are being put in front of us. And we're finding what is the most consistent uh, with getting things effectively done. So, yeah, that, and from everything we've said so far, I think that's the best way of going about it. Because there, you know, basic uh, a prom promises do go a long way. The hard thing is, like, and we uh, we've said a lot in this episode, it, it's hard to enforce a promise. Basically, so you have to have something there to kind of be in place of that promise. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with this. I think that's perfect. Um, and, yeah, th this is a way, this is a very uh, innovative way of going about it that you're not going to get from the cookie-cutter, straight-up law that we have today. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me that this was thought up, basically, from a libertarian point of view. So next, I would like to talk a little bit about something that was brought up before. Um, I think we touched on it, but I'd like to dig a little deeper on it is, you know, what really are the terms of, of contracts and stuff, you know, because if you transfer some title to property or possession to some property, well, then what were the conditions for that title? You know, what were the terms? What did the parties actually want? And like I said before, um, there's evidentiary issues, you know. Because if you just give somebody something without saying a word to them, you know, say you're in a foreign country and you see a newsstand and he doesn't even need to speak to you. He just hands you the, the newspaper, you hand him the foreign currency, and then you go on your way. There were no words exchanged, but that was a contract, right? And the terms of the contract was, I'll give you the newspaper for the money, right? That, and that was it. So, but sometimes, you know, with more complex deals, you know, it, it, it's harder to know. So the legal system has put in place some some different doctrines to to decide, you know, what are the kind of deals that we're going to enforce? What are the terms of certain deals that we're going to enforce? How are we going to know what the terms of these deals are? Uh, one of them is something called the parole evidence rule. And basically what this means is that if the parties write down the terms of their contract on a piece of paper and then it's signed and everything, then that then the court is going to view that as the final authoritative terms of the contract and any oral statements made by the parties before or after even if we have tape recordings even if we have whatever even if we know that they were considering some other things or something was said at one point in the negotiations right because negotiations a process it's always changing what the terms are and other kind of things like that until a final deal is made so kind of what the parole evidence rule says is if you put it down on paper, then that's what we're going to rely on, and we're not going to look at any other oral evidence. Um, and so I want to get your thoughts on this because it's kind of like 
I can understand how this is a good practical rule and it makes sense, but also at the same time, I also could understand how people who are contracting with, you know, agencies who will resolve contractual disputes for them and other kind of things like that, if they're doing that, then they might not want to have such a rigid rule. They might want to be able to have a court that would take into account oral statements made before and after the actual signing of the thing in order to decide, you know, what the terms are, or if there was something in the contract when it was written down, if there's something omitted, they forgot to put down or some kind of thing came up, then you could bring these in and try to determine, you know, what, what the terms were. Um, so I was just kind of thinking, you know, what do you think about the, the kind of doctrine in itself? And also, do you think that this is something that is just kind of um, the reason it's kind of in place now is only because of the status system, like imposing it from the top? And is this something that would maybe be a little bit, you know, more more loose if, if people had different contractual arrangements with dispute resolution agencies? Or do you think that the very act of writing something on a down on a piece of paper in itself is that not itself enough of a justification to say we're not going to consider anything else because you put it down on the paper and because of that, that's what you signed and we're going to go with that. I just kind of want to think of a, what do you think about some of the different things going on here? Yeah, so I do agree on the thing about, you know, what's written is written and that's what should be uh, considered and nothing else that was omitted or was forgotten from what was written. However, I do believe oral statements uh, to a degree, to an extent, should be taken into consideration, especially if those oral statements made, whether before or after, um, contradict or give new light to something within the contract itself. Yeah, because because the contractual terms themselves can be very Im- ambiguous a lot of the times, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, for that reason, I do think the oral statement should be taken into consideration. Um I'm going to have to ask you to explain the doctrine again, because I'm not exactly sure I got it completely. Yeah. So basically what it says is if you have a contract and you write down the terms and you sign it, the court is not going to consider other evidence to interpret that contract unless in cases of absolute, utter ambiguity or something coming up that was totally unforeseen in the contract. Unless there's something like that, then they're not going to take anything else into account. They're only going to read the plain language of the document. Yeah, so while I agree that, yes, they should read all uh, the plain language of the document and go off of that primarily, uh, no, I don't agree with that doctrine because, again, all of these contracts are diverse. They're very different. Every single one of them individually is radically different from every single other one uh, there is. So for that reasoning alone, no, I think they should take in more than just what is written down. I, all I'm saying as for what is written down is they shouldn't, no one should be able to make a case for what this was written there before, but this was meant to be written here. No, I, I don't think that should be considered at all. However, oral statements or any other kind of evidence that can give new light um, or contradict or whatever, um, that uh, something that is included in what is written, then I think that should be considered. 
So, yeah, I don't agree with that doctrine. I think you're right. I think you're right because we talk a lot about how we want to be able to contract with our dispute resolution agencies and our legal agencies. So if 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 we were to accept the parole evidence rule on its own terms, you know, without it being something that people agreed to in prior contracts, right? Because you could say, all right, I'm going to make this contract to live in this community. Then anytime I make a contract with somebody who's a part of this community, then we'll only take into consideration what's on that document. But that rule didn't apply to that original contract that you made. You agreed to that beforehand. And so when you made that original deal, then you could say, you know, maybe take in other oral evidence or if the contract itself said in it, no oral evidence will be taken to construe the words of this document. You're only going to read that. But that's just something you, you know, you agreed to and you saw that. And if you didn't like it, you wouldn't assign the, the deal. So I think, you know, at, at the first part, I think, yeah, the doctrine is something that's not a part of the legal theory in itself, but it's definitely something that can be either put into place by voluntary contract or it's something that that you could say, you know, because you wrote it down and it said in it, you know, we're only going to take this in, uh, therefore it would uh, apply. So I could see it something as maybe being like a practical legal doctrine that could arise in the market, but in terms of the legal theory itself, I think it's I think it's something that people would have to construct on their own. It's not something that's fundamental to the to the legal theory, the contract theory itself. I think you're right on that. Yeah, and I mean another thing I want to point out before we move on from this is if you get screwed over because of what someone else wrote in the contract, that's on you. You are you when you sign this contract, you should read over it. You should you should read over it plenty. You should dissect it plenty. You should try and get a firm understanding of how that contract can be interpreted and what it means. Um, because if you get screwed over because of what something someone else put in there, and if they did say what you just put in there, that no oral argument can be used uh, in the court of law to go against this contract, well, then that basically leaves the contract very ambiguous, uh, uh, which can hurt both sides. But the thing is, if that's in there, that gives you no that gives you no ground to stand on whenever you try to claim that you were wrongfully screwed over by the other person in this contract. So uh, just a note to the listeners, just a basic, you know, common sense. Always look at these contracts, always dissect them, always read them, because all the time I see people on social media talking about how um, this happened to them and this is an attack on their rights. But then the re they don't realize like what happened to them is because they agreed to some sort of contract like um, with, with, you know, some of the devices that spy on us these days. Well, we never read the contracts whenever we start, you know, certain apps or we start an account on a certain website. But some of these contracts implicitly have in them that the companies have a right to your data and they have a right to keep track of what you're looking up and all, all, all sorts of things like that. So if you truly want to look out for yourself and you want to make sure nothing that you don't know about is happening to you, read the contracts for everything, especially for things that 
you are going into a contractual agreement in that you use for everyday life, like Facebook, Instagram, uh, just an iTunes account, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, moral of the story there, read, read the damn contract. Also, I think this kind of ties in nicely with something we talked about in our Constitution episode when we were talking about the difference between textualism and originalism, right, in constitutional interpretation. Because I think ideally we would want to have constitutions, you know, so to speak, of different legal communities, different uh, arbitration, whatever, dispute resolution. Um, we would want those to have voluntary contract um, uh, constitutions or charters or whatever. And so if, you know, if you want, if you're going to argue for, and maybe it's separate, maybe it's a different issue because, you know, the constitution itself isn't a contract, right? It's a statist, you know, constitution. It's not a contract. But even still, it's like if you were to argue for the textualism argument rather than the originalism, then the textualism is just the plain text only, and you only read that and what it meant at the time. Whereas the originalism means, no, you take in the original intent, other arguments that were made, things people said at the time, right? And so it's kind of like, if you're going to argue for textualism in the constitutional context, then wouldn't you also have to argue for in favor of the parole evidence rule in the contracts context? Because then you're saying, you know, it's it's not a perfect analogy, but do you kind of see what I'm getting at there? The kind of if you're a textualist, then you have to say, well, then you only read the text of the contract, right, and nothing more. But if you're an originalist, then you take in the other oral statements that were made for the contract. And also, before I turn it over to you to kind of build off that, one of the things you said was, I, forgive me, I, I can't exactly remember what you said, but you said something about how the uh, not taking in oral statements surrounding the contract and stuff, not taking those into consideration and to figure out what the contract means, then that might lead to uncertainty or like, or bad outcomes. Is that kind of, did you say something like that before? So I'm just asking you like, what do you think about this and, and, and how would that play into that uncertainty versus textualism, originalism, originalism issue? Yeah. So I meant that in the sense of like, when you made the point that if you were to include in the contract that, uh, you know, no oral statements can be used um, in the court of law uh, con uh, concerning this contract, um, then I can see that the language of a contract being so ambiguous that it doesn't necessarily work out for either side. Uh, and, and so that's where I can see like how you pointed it out. That's a good point. I, I wasn't even thinking about the textualist originalist argument there. Um, maybe when it comes to contracts, uh, it, it pays off more to be, have the originalist line of thinking because with the contract, with contracts, especially, uh, textualism, I can, I can see only getting you so far on again, either side, because who knows how one thing can be interpreted or how it could be, uh, how, you know, one, what, how one would see it meaning, because again, all these contracts are different from one another. And another thing that goes into these contracts is the language used in these contracts. Um, that the, the language used in these contracts has a big, uh, as a big, what's the word I'm looking for? A big part that plays into that is the regions in which these contracts are drawn up in the locations that they're drawn up in and the kind of cultures they are drawn up in. 
So for that reason alone, if we're going to just be straight textualist, I think, again, that can not open up a can of worms, but lead us into a brick wall. If you, if you get what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I get you. I get you. And yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It's sometimes if you, and that, that, that ties into what you said, read your contracts. If it, if it does say in the contract, you know, only this contract uh, and the words in it will be, will be considered well then Brett, like, yeah, like you said, those terms could be ambiguous. So if you don't read them, you could get, you could get screwed over. Yeah. So I think that's, a, that's an important point. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is definitely something I haven't really uh, figured out, you know, talking about this in this episode has, has kind of illuminated uh, a lot of uh, different kind of, uh, aspects to it. So, uh, I'm not exactly sure what my, uh, what my position on it too. I got to think about it more, but, uh, it's definitely a lot of really interesting issues with the relationship between contracts and textualism and stuff. That's really fascinating. Uh, before I move on to our last few topics, I want to bring up one thing. Um, I just want to say that this, this contract theory, uh, having it based on property, as we talked about before in our argumentation ethics episode, property is based in scarcity, scarce physical resources. Property is the way that we avoid these conflicts in a world of scarcity. And uh, so basically this contract theory and this property theory don't allow for the idea of intellectual property and don't allow for the idea of transferring things and owning things which are not scarce. And because ideas aren't scarce, they're not therefore not uh, tied to property theory. It's like if I want to take your uh, food that you have on your plate, and if I eat it, then now you don't have food, right? There's the scarcity. But if you have an idea in your head, and then you share it with me, and now I have the idea in my head, I didn't take the idea out of your head. You still have it in my head. You just multiplied it without losing it. So therefore, since it's not scarce, there's no property right there. And that's basically Stefan Katsella's general general argument about IP. We might do an episode about IP in the future, um, but uh, I just wanted to kind of point that out, that especially because... I would love to. Yeah, especially because a lot of libertarians, especially the objectivists, Ayn Rand, they definitely really agree with the with the intellectual property. So I, def- I think that's something that uh, that libertarianism needs to do to kind of uh, get more people on, the bo- on board of the anti-intellectual property train. And I'm assuming you yourself, you know, agree with all that. Definitely. Uh, when I first got into libertarianism, the whole anti-IP thing really boggled my mind for the longest time. And then I read uh, Rothbard's chapter, or maybe just been a subchapter about it, and for New Liberty. As soon as I read that, I was like, "All right, screw IP." Like I was on, I was on the anti-IP train right away. What exactly did he say? I can't remember. I, I read it a few years ago, but what exactly does he say about IP and for New Liberty? So first, he goes on. You know, he makes the argument. I think. Uh, it may not, it may have been separate, but it kind of tied into it for me. You know, you don't own your reputation. You don't own other people's thoughts. But then what really sold it for me was whenever he talked about the market for it. And then I was able to kind of put it into my own perspective. You know, you don't, you don't, you can make a design, but how can you own that design? Especially if someone else can remake that design with their own materials. So the way I thought about it was, so, like, say I make a Yankees jersey here in America, and uh, or and I work for the Yankees team, and I, you know, I make it just the same way, and I have my own materials. Well, yeah, if someone takes that and then tries to sell, yes, that should be theft because those are my materials that I made that shirt. However, 
if someone in China wants to make the same jersey with their own materials uh, and then sell the jersey, well, I don't own the colors. I don't own the materials that he used to make the jersey. Uh, how can you even own a name like Yankees when Yankee is used to describe so many different things? Um, so when I thought about it like that, and then I saw how it can be used to hamper the market where someone can have a monopoly on a design or even a color or a phrase, and that gives them a, a kind of advantage in the market that no one else will have access to. That's when I was saw that it was basically monopolist. It goes against the free market. Uh, it, it gives people a, a very unfair advantage because you can't, you know, words aren't scarce, color isn't scarce, designs aren't scarce. So why is it that we're going to make it, we're going to treat it as if it is? So that's why I became very anti-IP. And I think this is an insight that even Mises uh, touches on a little bit in Human Action. His, his treatment of IP in Human Action is kind of interesting. He really doesn't come out as explicitly anti-IP. He looks at it in a more utilitarian, in a utilitarian way. But one of the things he says is that recipes are not scarce. You know, he talks about how recipes are not necessarily an economic good because they're not subject to scarcity and economization. They're just a way of of organizing things, right? They're just an idea. Um, and so I definitely think that just from the economics side of things, we can, you know, we can see that um, all these kind of implications that you were bringing out. Um, so I so before we move on, actually, now that you brought this up, I, I'd like to dig into this just a little bit more. What do you kind of think of, um, have you ever heard about Rothbard's kind of arguments for um, like conditioning, um, not copying things um, as a term of a contract? Do you, uh, do you recognize this at all? I, I don't. Okay, so kind of, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Rothbard, what he said was because we were talking about title transfers and all this kind of stuff and conditions and terms of contracts. What he kind of says is you could like sell a book to somebody and you sell them to the physical book, but a condition of the receipt of their title for the book is that they don't copy the contents of the book. And therefore, you could say that if they ever were to copy the contents of the book, then they uh, violated the conditions for the receipt of title. Therefore... They are a thief of the physical book, not the contents and the ideas, but the physical book because they copied it and that went against the conditions. And you can condition contracts on any action you want. So what do you kind of think about this? Do you think that this is kind of a legitimate way that you could maybe vicariously have kind of quasi-IP obligations um, through voluntary contract? I would have to look into that more, but just from the way you explained it, I already like it, and I do think that is a great way of having a, some sort of, like you said, quasi-IP, and uh, that's perfect because I, you know, I never really knew about that before, but it certainly answers a lot of questions in my mind that I've still had about IP, even though I have been against it, and it also gives me a little ammo to use against people now whenever... Uh, I get into these arguments over IP, and the first thing they say is, oh, so if I made a movie 
or I wrote a book, you could just go steal my book and sell it or like, you know, like, uh, which, you know, obviously that, no, you can't just do that. And really it doesn't even sound, even if you could, it doesn't sound like a very efficient way of making money, but, uh, that, you know, uh, that's, that's a pretty, in my, in my head, again, like we talked about, uh, there being robust ways of, uh, finding ways to actually enforce promises within a contract with a libertarian point of view. I would say that's a way to actually kind of enforce real, uh, IP laws and rather not IP laws that are made to hamper the market and hamper the market and give someone an advantage on the market through regulations that are IP laws. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, the way the IP is done now is obviously monopoly and just just yeah. really terrible. So definitely, you know, not trying to justify that in any way. But um, no. so it's an it's an interesting kind of thought because um, because even if we were to accept this argument by Rothbard and, and me personally, I'm still uh, thinking about it a lot. Um, I don't know if I totally agree. Um, I think Stefan Kinsella had some criticisms of of this idea. I think one of them, uh, even if it doesn't necessarily apply to the context of a book, it, it might kind of show the the limits that this kind of quasi IP contracting might have. And the idea is like, say you are selling seed for crops, right? And let's say your condition on the sale of these seeds to the person who's buying them, you could say the condition for your receipt of the seeds is that you never, you don't replant the seeds that grow from the plants that these seeds become into. And so the problem there would be, well, that person never owned those seeds. They didn't grow them. They never owned them. They only owned the original seed, but they didn't own the seeds that that original seed was would produce. They only own the physical thing as it exists at the time. And so therefore it might be, you might not have the legal right to set that condition because you're conditioning, you're basically asserting some type of property ownership or right to set a condition on those new seeds that would grow. And you didn't make them. The person who grew them and had them on their lawn, they would be the rightful owner. I think this is kind of an idea that I've heard. So it's like I don't, I don't necessarily know where I agree, but it might be a. It's just worth thinking about, like what might the limits of this kind of, I, you know, this IP through contract would kind of be, like where you're kind of, you're kind of exerting control over property that's not really yours, perhaps. So the only rebuttal. To that, that can come right off the top of my head because that that is a good point you make, and that is a sort of Pandora's box that that conditioning does kind of open up there. The only rebuttal I have to that is that in the sense that, you know, how we brought up the book first and now seeds. Well, again, words are not uh, finite. Seeds are. So I can see it being legit for uh the seed itself maybe uh i'm not going to dig too much into this uh however for the for the words itself you know it's not the words that you are basically saying you can't take uh from the from how i understood it at least it, you're just saying you can't take that physical book and and remake that book correct 
what you're saying, no, what what they're saying is that I'm going to give you the physical book, but okay. when you get the physical book, you can't copy its contents, and therefore, if you copy the contents, then you break the condition for your title in the book, and if you break that condition, then you have stolen the book. Okay, see, and I can under, I, I get that, and I, 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 and I, can, I see that being legitimate. The one with the seeds is tricky. That is for that's true. Yeah, I know. That's what like I was saying. It's it's something that I haven't even figured out. It's a really, really, it's a really, really fascinating issue. Whether or not like you could condition, like how far do the conditions on your contracts go? Like what can you condition a contract on? Like because like if you're telling somebody they have to do something, like as a condition to lease them, lease them properly, like they have to drive their car somewhere to do some job in order to get the money. Well, then. You're you're saying to them that they there's something that they have to do with their property in order to get it, and so maybe you could make that same thing with the seeds. It's like okay, maybe even if they own those seeds that they produced from the original seed that you sold, you're still conditioning the receipt of that original seed on their use of their property, which is basically what any condition is for any contract. It's a condition you set on the use of your own body, on the use of something else in order to get something in return. So you know, but also it's like just from a practical sense when i think about like any seed seller saying you can't replant the seeds well then that might just might be kind of inefficient i mean i don't know it just seems kind of uh and maybe it wouldn't be i don't know if if people voluntarily contracted to it then that would be the their prerogative and you know maybe the seed sellers who uh who would make those conditions even if those conditions were legally valid Maybe just the market just would drive them out because no one would buy from them. And the people who say, hey, you can replant the seeds and they're going to get those sales and the people who don't, you know. So I don't know. It's like they might get those short-term sales and that would, you know, I don't know. It's like I don't know exactly how it would work. I'm just kind of, you know, thinking out loud with uh, the different kind of the, the different kind of considerations that go into this. It's really, it's a tough one for me. I really don't know where I fall on this issue. So... That gives me an idea, though, because we both love interacting with the fans of this show. So to the listeners who just heard what me and David were talking about, if you have an answer to this little problem that we just discussed, please email it to, what is it, Dave? Uh, at, uh, at gmail.com. Or just send it to our Twitter, which is at Law of Liberty Pod, right? At Law of Liberty Pod, yes. Yeah, so just... If you think you have an answer to that, send it to us and we'll read it out over the air because that's something I'd be interested in hearing. And like I said, we love interacting with the fans. We love uh, getting to put you all out there. We love getting to talk about you all on the show. But uh, before we go on, is there anything else you want to say about that? Nope. I, I think that's really good. I think we'll definitely cool. get people really thinking about that. It's definitely getting me thinking more about it. So maybe it's something yeah, same. maybe it's something we'll come back to in a later episode if we, you know, get some good answers from the fans and if we can do a little bit more research in it and and figure out if we might have a more uh, definite answer. It's definitely something that needs to be worked out. All right. So I just have a couple more things uh that I want to hit on. So as libertarians, we believe in homesteading, self-ownership, individual self-ownership, and then by extension, individual homesteading of private resources and individual private property. And so the question becomes, what's individuals' ability to enter into like collective contracts and agreements for the 
maybe if not necessarily ownership, but the collective use of property and setting up organizations to direct the use of property. Specifically, I'm talking about corporations. With a corporation, when you have stockholders, they're kind of the owners of the money that goes in because they buy their share and they get the right to their dividend or the right to vote in the corporate elections, uh, what have you. And so there's some debate within libertarianism whether or not the corporate entity is something that can legally or, or validly under the theory be contracted into if you have the right to kind of enter into like these collective agreements of, of the use of property in these kind of ways. And my kind of thought is, yeah, I think this has to be valid because if it's still just individuals who are contracting ultimately and each individual does agree, then that's still an individual. We're still basing it in the individualism. That aspect is still there. They're just using that individualism to erect some institution that will you know, be able to use their property as they think they best see fit. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts about this, uh, this uh, topic? Wait a minute, Dave. Are you going neoliberal on me? Are you saying corporations are people too? Oh, well, I'm saying that, that people can make corporations. Yeah, no, I'm just... I'm no, just I got... No, for you. sure, for sure. Uh, but no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, Before you go on, I will say that corporations, legally speaking, do have personhood. Uh, under yes. they have legal personhood which means that you can sue them so this is another this is another aspect of corporations that people don't like you you contract as a shareholders or whoever and then if the corporation acts you know the board authorizes something and then its employers do stuff or whatever and then you know let's say the corporation acting in its capacity in its business if it harms you in some way then you sue the corporation. You don't sue the individuals who did the actual physical harming, the employees or the board members or the shareholders or whoever. You sue the corporation itself as, a, as its own legal entity, and they say it's a legal fiction. So that's what people, there's kind of like two different aspects to saying that corporations are people. The first aspect is saying that they have legal personhood so that you can sue them separately from the individuals who comprise the corporation, but also it's just because human beings are what make up any institution. You know, there's no real actual physical institution, whether it be a government or a corporation, it's still just human beings doing things. And I was going to say for that reason, because uh, human beings do make up institutions from corporations to churches to, I don't know, economics, uh, camp type things that you have in the summer in the state of Alabama, uh, people make up institutions. So for that reason alone, yeah, I do agree with what you put out there. And, uh, yeah, corporations are people, man. Like, uh, we got to love these people too. No, I'm just kidding. You can still hate corporations and agree that they absolutely, (laughs) you can disagree with mercantilism and, and corporatism and still think that corporations can be actual existing entities in a libertarian social order. Yeah. That's what I think. And I think, I think that's the generally, uh, especially maybe with more like, I guess, I guess call them right libertarians. You know, I think maybe the left libertarians have a little bit more problems with that. But I think, you know, on the right, I mean, Kinsella, Block, Walter Block has written 
um, in favor of, of corporations under, under these libertarians theories. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there. Um, as you know, this is definitely another kind of, uh, interesting, uh, ramification of these theories that, that people need to understand how it will kind of work out and how we can build institutions with contracts. And it's just kind of like, that's, that's kind of all, that's what we want as anarcho-capitalist libertarians. We want institutions to arise through contract. So if people didn't have the right to make collective institutions to be a contract, then our entire view of what collective institutions need to be falls apart. So I think that the corporate theory is just part and parcel with the with the contract theory and, and our view on politics. And if we don't accept it, then we have to, you know, we're just contradicting ourselves with our view on how we build political systems in addition to, you know, business corporate systems. Yeah, totally. Because, I mean, the main thing with being a libertarian is consistency. If you don't have consistency with the rule of law, then uh, you're not a libertarian because not everyone's then truly equal under what the law is. And while libertarians aren't necessarily egalitarians, uh, we definitely do believe in equality uh, under the law. So therefore, yes, consistency does matter there. And if you're not consistent on that, even even if you're a left libertarian, uh, you're not a libertarian by any means. Consistency is key. So yeah, I agree. So just the final point I want to bring up, and then we'll wrap up the episode. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of easements um, and kind of how it ties in with homesteading and how it ties in with um, the idea of, of use rights. Uh, in, in Ethics of Liberty, in the chapter that Rothbard talks about the contract theory, he gives an example of how you could have contracts where, and, and this kind of also ties into the IP argument that he made with the condition on the, you know, not copying the book or whatever. It's that you could sell some land to somebody with a house on it or some land with, well, let's say no, let's, lay, let's say a land with no house on it, but it's next to your land that you're living on. But, you know, you don't want the whole thing. You want to sell the extra stuff. You just want your land that has your property on it, that, that has your house on it. Then when you sell that land, you could condition that sale to them and say, hey, I'm going to sell you this land, um, but I want to still be able to view, you know, this river valley that's across on the other side of your land. I still want to have my view from my third floor of that river valley. So I'm going to sell you this land, but only if you promise me that you build the house somewhere on the land where it doesn't obstruct my view, or you build it so that it's not to a certain height where it obstructs my view. And then if he were to violate that condition, then you know he'd revert the title back to the original owner, and he would be a trespasser and a thief. So basically what, argue, what Rothbard kind of argues there is that you can have those like easements or like use rights. So basically it's like, I'm selling you this land, but I'm retaining for myself one of the rights that I have to the land, and one of the rights that I have to that land is m my right to, you know, view over this land or, you know, to have this view of the riverbed or whatever. It's just like a contractual way that you could you could divvy up property into different rights to the same property. The, per the person who's getting it would have the right to build their house to a certain height, but then the other person would still own a right to that land to have the view, and that's just part of the contract. And then what also what Rothbard says is, but this is only based on that contract and those people who made the deal. So what he kind of said was, if the person who had the original house, let's say he dies 
and then you know he doesn't have an heir or or um nobody else like you know or whatever he doesn't transfer his rights to the other guy's property to them then what Rothbard says is then because he's dead and he doesn't have an heir then that right that he retained in the land when he sold it that is abandoned and then that right would go to the first homesteader who is the person who is living on the land now because he's been there the whole time and so now that he's living on that land and this other person who sold him that land died that right that that seller retained is is it's abandoned you know nobody gets it after the death because there's no heir and then the person who's living there homestead it because he's living there so i'm just wondering uh what do you th- what do you think about what do you think about all that and that kind of argument for how you could have those those different like uses land use rights to the same land or the same property but through contract put in place via contract yeah um i i agree with that because i think that's key to kind of smashing these regional uh, monopolies that some corporations or just powerful uh, people have in general as well as governments who get them not through uh, uh, quasi private means the same ways the same way powerful individuals and corporations do I think it goes uh, I think it does a lot to smash those regional monopolies but also it also ensures that everyone kind of has a fair chance at getting land uh no matter what their financial status may be because let's face it yeah uh, it allows for leases yeah yeah exactly and also you know not every single person has someone they're going to uh you know hand their property off to so why shouldn't go to the state to then own and then make money off of why can't someone just say Okay, well, I was here first after it was abandoned, and I've mixed my labor with labor with the land. Therefore, wouldn't it be mine more than anyone else's? Wouldn't my claim to this land be greater than anyone else's? And and I agree with that. So yeah, I do agree with Rothbard there. Um, and I, that's something I did know about uh, before coming into this episode today. And yeah, I've I've always kind of agreed with that one. Homesteading is a very libertarian principle, and one that must be upheld if it's anything's going to be considered libertarian. So this Rothbard example we just went over was about how you could have these different land use rights set up by a contract. But now I'd like to talk more about how you might be able to have it prior to contract, because as we know, homesteading is prior to contract. And so the question is, can these kind of easements arise by the homesteading process itself. And this is something that Walter Block talks about when he um, when he kind of delineated what's what's come to be known as the Blockian proviso. And what he kind of says is that if you homestead land in a way that you take control of some land, you homestead it, you set up a fence or whatever, but if by homesteading this, you are precluding other people from homesteading land which you have not homesteaded, then that is illegitimate. So he's, the way he puts it is if you homestead in a donut. So you have a ring that goes around, but you don't homestead what's outside of it and you don't homestead what's inside of it. 
but because you homesteaded the donut ring, other people can't get into the middle to homestead that land you haven't homesteaded. So you're exerting control over the land without having homesteaded it. And Walter Block argues that this is illegitimate, that this is not something that you can do under libertarian homesteading theory, and that he says that if you were to do this, you would have to allow a easement into the inside of that property to somebody to homestead it and to be able to get to and from their property without uh, hindrance. And so the reason he came up with this idea was because he wanted to argue that libertarianism does not allow you to starve your children. That was the argument that he was he was trying to argue against that by saying, look, when you have a child, you don't own the child, but you own the right to be the caretaker for the child, which I think is legitimate because, you know, I, I believe that children have rights. Obviously, they're not, you know, full adults or everything. So, they're you know, they're definitely conditioned on, you know, trying to raise them upright and protect them and, you know, keep them from danger. But... You know, I definitely think that children have a right to not be starved, you know, and so, you know, that so um, because children are helpless, children are born in a state of fragility. And I think one of even and I think within libertarianism, it's important to understand, as you said, with like restitution, it kind of ties into it, too, which is that if you put somebody by your actions in a vulnerable position where they might die Right. If if you aggress against somebody's own body or their property and you put them in a in a hazardous position, then I think that you have a duty to help them out. Right. It's like if you if you push somebody into water um, and during a storm and they start drowning, well, you put them in that position of danger. They weren't just drowning there before you showed up. You put them in that position and therefore you have to save them because you put them in imminent peril and restitution, you know, if they were to die, the restitution would be a life. All right. But if you save the life, then, you know, then, you know, then that doesn't happen. So I think that, I think that block is right here to try to argue that, you know, children are born into a state of dependency and therefore their parents have a legal duty to care for them and to protect them. And I think that that duty comes with a right to be the one who does the protecting because, you know, they are the parents. They have the best claim to care for that child more than anybody else. And so he's so he's arguing that you can give away or you can abandon your rights. This is what he says. You can abandon your rights to be the caretaker of the child, but you cannot keep somebody else from then taking up that right. So it's like if you abandon your child somewhere, you can't then keep somebody from taking the child in and caring for them and becoming their new guardian and homesteading those guardianship rights that occurred when you put that person in that state of peril, which a child is in. They're in a state of peril. So I'm just wondering, what do you think of all this? This I, because because it applies it applies to the full homesteading context to land and everything. So even though he was making the argument in that context of, of, of guardianship for children, it applies to all homesteading. So what do you think about all that? So I agree 
with everything you said there, so I'm going to try and make a point to as to why I agree with it that is different from yours. And it goes back to consistency. Um, looking at this with a libertarian point of view, we as libertarians, we respect every human's right to, 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 to being human. We, you know, their individual rights, their individual liberty. We respect that of every human. We also, as libertarians, know that not everyone is equal. We all have inherent differences, and we all have differences that are apparent in the skills that we develop and the actions that we uh, take part in. So if we acknowledge that, those are, that there are differences, we have to therefore then recognize those differences. So with talking about a kid specifically, yes, we can uh, you know, acknowledge that a kid has their rights just as any other human does, but a kid is different from every other uh, human uh, older than it, uh, no matter how, you know, you, you, you grow more and you change as you age. So the younger the kid is, the more vulnerable they are. Therefore, the more kind of a you know guardianship they need. And like I agree with you, if you make someone, uh, if you put someone in a vulnerable position because of your actions, you know you might be responsible for. You are responsible for what happens to them. Um, if because it, if they it, don't if, have if the actions directly affected their self ownership, their body or their property, right? Yes, because they have no control over the position that you're putting them in. Uh, especially if they're a kid who lacks the understanding uh, that he that you gain as you grow. So yeah, I, I do agree with Block's position on, position on this, not only because of the reasons that you stated, but again, because it's consistent. And libertarianism, in order to be effective, must be consistent. Consistency is key. We 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 must never tire of saying that. I completely agree. Well, that wraps it up on my end. That's everything that I had. So, Stratty, if you have any uh, final thoughts or things to say before we uh, wrap up. Yeah, I mean, this was an episode I kind of went into knowing a bit about without really having to read anything. But it's really interesting to just come on here and discuss it because you realize how nuanced just the subject of contracts is alone. And it's cool to break it down because it makes you start to think more about other factors of law or society things that help make it go. So, uh, just, you know, use this kind of vision with everything, uh, to our listeners, you know, look at everything with this kind of an eye, because the more you can break things down, the better you'll understand them. And, you know, maybe you can teach them even better than David here does. In my opinion, he, he's a great teacher. So, you know, always have that eye to look at things with. And, uh, that's it for me. Uh, I'll go ahead and do my plugs. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Stratty D. I'm on Instagram, at Stratty Shrugged. I'm, like, uh, I'm on Facebook, Strat James Davis. Please listen to Insurrection Inc. That's the other podcast I'm on. We recorded an episode this past week. I'm not sure if the episode with us on Dissecting Liberty has come out yet, but look out for it when it does. And uh, go check out all my articles on the Cotton Report, as well as David's articles on the Cotton Report. And David, if you have any plugs, go ahead. Yeah, you'll find the show at Law of Liberty Pod on Twitter. You'll find uh, me on Twitter at Hoffunk, H-O-F-F-F-U-N-K. And uh, as Shreddy said before in the episode, if you have any thoughts on what we're talking about, or if you have any ideas on some of the things we haven't figured out, 
send send either of us uh, a message on Twitter, email or uh, email the email lovelarypodcast at gmail, or uh, send a message to the uh, uh, to the Twitter for the page and let us know what you think. Let us know uh, how we're doing and uh, let us know your thoughts on all the stuff we're talking about. And I think with that. Uh, we'll sign off and uh, see you till next time. Stratty? See y'all. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Law of Liberty podcast. We will see you again next time very soon. Bye.